Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this show, this one that you're listening to now, is supported entirely by our listeners. If you want to join us, you can subscribe over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast at any of our various tiers. Each of those tiers comes with different levels of bonus material from our monthly newsletter to bonus episodes where we may or may not use spicy language from time to time. And if you just want to hang with us and keep listening, we're so happy you're here. Yeah. And as we close in on the end of summer in our shared hemisphere, me and Anna, Mm. uh, we thought it would be a good time to talk about something that's popped up in recent news more than once. Um, The recent spate of archaeological sites revealed in various ways by drought and more broadly, climate change. This is a weird one to think about because, on one hand, our picture of the past is enriched by new finds. But at what cost? That's like the, like, log line of all of my, like, relationship with anthropology. At what cost? At what cost? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know which scenario I'd personally prefer climate-wise, but there's plenty of news coverage that spins the whole drought thing into sites being revealed or exposed or, in one instance, gifted. That one might be a quirk of translation because the original title is in German, so mm, maybe. So here's the plan for the today's episode, not in general. Um, <laughs> not, and not to fix climate change. Here's, Don't. Here's the, here's the run of show. Um, so we're going to bring uh, y'all a roundup of sites and finds that we wouldn't know much about if drought hadn't affected landscapes in various ways. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing climate change as a concept or depressing fact of life now. Um, it will come up, obviously, but hopefully, listeners, as we bring you these stories, you'll have the chance to kind of sit with that uncomfortable tension of gaining knowledge at the expense of the landscape and people that live on it. Mm-hmm. So here we go. First up, we are headed to a park, a national park. I was in one of those yesterday. I was to No, it was a state park. Never mind. I was in a na- I was in a national park and I drove into a bridge. <laughs> yep. But this is so this isn't quite a national park. <laughs> this hasn't been upgraded the way that New River Gorge recently was. Um, so this is the Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, uh, which is in southwestern Utah, uh, which features Lake Powell. Uh, which is a recent addition to the landscape. It's a reservoir created in 1966 with the construction of the Glen Canyon Dam. Um, It's a dam across the Colorado River that resulted in the inundation of much of Glen Canyon. So a lot of it is hundreds of feet underwater now, or at least it was. 
<laughs> fewer feet underwater yeah. now. Hundreds um, of feet has been. Now it's less. So I'm going to quote from a New Yorker article by Elizabeth Colbert. So she's the author of The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, uh, which is about the effect we humans have had on our planet. Um, Anna has put a parenthetical here. Great book. Um, It's really well written. Also, a great episode of The X-Files. There's also The Sixth Extinction Part I think this was a finale premiere situation. Uh, Thank you, X-Files librarian. (laughs) Quote, behind the dam, water backed up for almost 190 miles, creating a reservoir with the shape of a snake that swallowed a porcupine. (laughs) Isn't that like, isn't that in the little prince? Yeah, that's a snake that swallowed an elephant. An elephant? Yeah. Yeah. At full capacity, Lake Powell stores 24 million acre feet of water, enough to flood the entire state of Massachusetts hip deep. Evocative. Uh, Before it was drowned, Glen Canyon was inhabited by humans off and on for more than 10,000 years. From an archaeological perspective, its most significant occupants were the people known as the ancestral Puebloans. At the height of their influence, the ancestral Puebloans controlled a vast swath of the Four Corners region. Cutting in here to say, check out episode 16. Welcome to Cliff Palace. From one million years ago. (laughs) I know, from (laughs) 10,000 years ago. Episode (laughs) 16. Good Lord. To the Puebloans, Glen Canyon was farm country. They grew maize, squash, and cotton on the floors of its side canyons and impounded its streams and seeps to store water for their crops so that they could travel overland between one side of one side of the canyon and next they chiseled footholds into the cliff faces mm. starting around the year 1200 glen canyon experienced a population boom then just 60 or 70 years later the place emptied out the granaries the kivas and the stone cliff dwellings were abandoned so this is this is thought to be due to severe drought or like The Great Drought, among other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Continuing the quote. According to a recent paper in Science, the drought that's plagued the Southwest since the early 2000s is already more acute than the worst stretch of the Great Drought. It's also worse than an even greater drought that hit the region in the mid-1100s and nearly as bad as the most severe dry spell on record, which occurred in the late 1500s. Indeed, all of Western North America, which includes Northern Mexico, is currently on a mega, quote, 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 mega (laughs) drought-like trajectory, end quote. In 1957, there was a call for a salvage archaeology project at Glen Canyon. The goal was to document as many sites and their features as possible before the dam was completed and its sites flooded. This is something that happens Every mm-hmm. day for folks working in CRM archaeology. Yeah. Um, this this is why often why you might call a CRM archaeology firm or um, or sort of role for uh, a department of yeah. highways or sort of public works or whatever. Yeah. Um, this was archaeological material left behind by generations of Puebloan Paiute 
Hopi, Navajo, and other Indigenous American groups. The Glen Canyon Project documented more than 2,000 of these cultural sites, but the physical materials were mostly unsalvaged. They've been underwater since the canyon was flooded. Now, as the levels of Lake Powell drop, at least a quarter of the sites originally documented in the late 50s are visible and on dry land again. The National Park Service is monitoring the reappearance of these sites, but we weren't able to find any documentation of the NPS detailing funding for conservation work. Yeah, at the moment, they're just they're monitoring just to sort of see what the situation requires. Maybe one day it will become a national park and then it'll get funding. Mm. A friend of the show, Hannah, got to hear a lot of me grumbling as we were walking around the new national park Mm -hmm. Um, as I was just like, my politics preclude me enjoying this (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and just sort of thinking about how the concept of national parks um, and sort of as a construct and as like, as you and I talked about in sort of the Terra Nullius episode about dealing with the idea of wilderness of wilderness and like preserving places for people to enjoy in future generations, but not the people living on them now, not those people (laughs) or, or sort of the, the legacies and, and like memories and sort of, posthumous wishes of the people who lived on it before. Um, And so I was a real treat for everybody in the Canyon Rim Visitor Center Mm. uh, yesterday. Uh, But maybe, maybe Glen Canyon will see an infusion of funding. I hope so. So a related thing that's been happening, not in Lake Powell, but in Lake Mead, which is also they're, they're connected. Uh, because Lake Mead is also a result of a dam on the Colorado River. And my dad multiple times pointed me towards this news story or sort of was like, you know, they keep finding a little bit of ghoulish interest there. But uh, yeah, dad. So Lake Mead is about 20 miles east of Las Vegas, Nevada. And apparently in the 70s and 80s, it was a popular place to drop a body. At least five sets of human remains have been found since May 2022. Some of them are clearly homicides. Others are ongoing investigations. And a lot of this probably has to do with mob activity in in Vegas in the 70s and 80s. Hence my dad's ghoulish interest. This is not a part of his his, his whole deal that I knew about. No, it's not mob stuff, but it's... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's up with... (laughs) Dr. Gene. Okay. Gene's a, Gene's um, a mob guy. He's into mobs. He's also, into mob uh, my brain is so smooth. So smooth brain. Yeah. I just don't have you've it been, today. You've been using some alpha hydroxy acids on your brain and just <laughs> Hyaluronic. smoothing them out. Oh, yeah. No wrinkles here. Youthful. Okay. Also found in Lake Mead. <laughs> Little baby brain. <laughs> was a World War II era boat. That had been used to survey the Colorado River. Did the mob kill it? No. Higgins Industries in New Orleans built several thousand landing craft between 1942 and 1945. And around 1,500 of these Higgins boats were deployed at the Battle of Normandy. D-Day. So the one in Lake Mead was more of a... Very good. Thank you. The one in Lake Mead was more of a research vessel. So that, that was not... It was an, an active combat boat. <laughs> it was a research boat. 
But this. But it was the same, same boat? Same kind of, same, it was one of the same types of boats. (laughs) In Regan's. I made a boat. (laughs) My pun machine's broken. I don't know. I was going to. Pun machine go. Yeah. But this brings us neatly to our next item in this roundup. For this one, we're headed to Europe. Sunken ships from World War II are showing up again. A lot, I mean, they're not sailing up and they're, they're being uncovered. <laughs> it's like some like some like pirates of the Caribbean, like <laughs> the like, flying Deutschman. This isn't our um, most sparkling episode. That's for sure. Um, if this is your first episode, please stop listening. Go back to, I don't know, Listen we've done some good else. ones recently. Everyone stop listening to this episode. <laughs> this is Go now on, just Anna. a phone call. It's just us. With <laughs> Great. Sunken ships from World War II are showing up along the coasts and rivers of various countries with some pretty serious consequences, especially since some of the ordnance on those vessels is still live. Oh, no. Yeah. No. In, so in Italy... Um, the River Po, which is Italy's longest river, for any trivia fans listening, has experienced... Longer than rivers, Dipsy and Lala. Get out. No, that was that was very good. Thank you. So the River Po <laughs> has experienced its lowest levels in 70 years. Yeah, me too. In July of this year, fishermen found an unexploded 1,000-pound bomb left over from military activity during World War II. But don't worry, the bomb was manufactured in the good old U.S. of A. It was safely removed from the river and detonated in a controlled explosion about 30 miles away from where it was found. A couple months earlier, there was also a 164-foot barge that was uncovered by the receding Poe. It was used to transport wood during the war, but sank in 1943. Nothing to do with explosives, just there was also a barge. Did they also drive a robot at it and detonate it? Nope. (laughs) In other warship in a river news, receding levels in the Danube have uncovered around two dozen German ships that sank during World War II. The vessels were once operated by Nazi Germany's Black Sea Fleet, which traveled through the waterway while retreating from Soviet forces in the last year or so of the war. Hundreds of sunken German warships are scattered across the Danube River, and they can pose dangers to current river traffic and shipping when water levels fall too low. The safety of drinking water in those areas might also be endangered. I'm not saying that people just like show up and drink from the river, but um, and this isn't because of explosives or anything, just because things leach out from the wrecks and get into local reservoirs and groundwater. Okay, and so within this roundup, I'm going to do another mini roundup of a couple other European sites. Sub roundup? Sub roundup, yes. Of a couple of other European sites exposed by low water levels. So like, not ships, but other stuff. So the 1960s CE was a great time for dams, apparently. In Spain, a dam across the Mino River created the Belasar Reservoir and mostly submerged the historic town of Old Porto Marin. In preparation, the most significant historic buildings were moved brick by brick up to the top of a nearby hill. These buildings included the 12th century Church San Juan de Porto Marin, Church of St. John, and the Capella de San Pedro, or St. Peter's Chapel. 
But now that water levels in the reservoir are lower than they have been in decades, much of old Portamarin is visible again. This includes remains of the original Roman city and the medieval one that developed after the Roman Empire, you know, imploded. Back to Italy. Nyerum. The decreasing levels of the Tiber River have revealed a 1st century CE bridge allegedly built by the Emperor Nero. Actually, it was probably built before Nero's time, but it's still known as the Pons Neronianus, Nero's bridge. Pons. That's bridge. You got one in your brain, too. It's just a... It's just a, it's just a silly word. Pons. Is this why you left that verb out above? Because you were, like, thinking in Latin? No. And you were, like, translating out of Latin, and I was just giving you an out. Thanks. I, I love that you think I do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here's a great sentence. A number of scholars have commented that the bridge was constructed on a poorly chosen site. Uh, no armchair quarterbacks over here. Yeah. Robin Taylor, uh, a classics professor at University of Texas at Austin, um, said the bridge was, quote, built on a tight bend in a floodplain, which is a terrible idea. Yep. Let's take a quick ad break now before we move on to another damn problem. Anna. This is our main feed. You can't use language like that. The architectural kind, not the sweary kind. Not the sweary kind. Okay. All right. Fine. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. I bet I would drive into the guardrail on the pods, to be honest, too. <laughs> oh, tragedy plus time, you know? It's, it's been 27 hours. <laughs> More time. <laughs> All right. We are back. 
and get your archaeology and the media bingo cards ready because here's a twofer. Um, it's a 1960s dam related site hey. and it's a site that is referred to by nearly every story we found as a Spanish Stonehenge. Cha-ching. It is otherwise known as the Dolmen of Guadalajara, uh, which does make it sound like some kind of witch. Um, and it, it dates it's, to it's kind of it's, it's good. yeah, it's cool. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and it dates to somewhere between four thousand and seven thousand years ago. So, from Smithsonian Magazine, quote: The Dolmen. Of Guadalajara consists of about 140 boulders arranged in a concentric circle. Likely used as both a temple and cemetery, the monument once once featured meniers or tall upright stones topped by horizontal slabs of stone to form an enclosed dolmen, which is a single chambered tomb. Oh, interesting. I thought the pieces were the, were also called dolmen, but I guess the structure as a whole. Is yeah. Dolmen. I just learned a thing. Yes. Um, yeah, because there's just the one. It's not a dolman. And then you have dolmen. It's only That's how that <laughs> works. Singular plural situation. Uh-huh. Um, we'll explain why it's men here and not man here. Exactly. An engraved manure stood guard at the structure's entrance while a, pe- a pebble wall later built around the dolmen cemented its status as a collective burial site, end quote. All right. Yeah, this site is like Stonehenge in that it seems to have been used as a burial ground and some sort of solar related ritual area. Like the word temple was thrown around a lot. I don't really know what we... Really know what like the defining criteria for temple is? Yeah, well, I don't. Um, yeah, some sort yeah. of ceremonial site? Question mark. With walls, with walls. But the Spanish dolmen site may also may have had an economic fun- function. Um, it was placed at one of the few points along the Tahoe River where it would have been possible to cross, so it would have been a hub for travelers. So uh, going back to that Smithsonian article again, quote, a German researcher named Hugo Obermeier first excavated the dolmen between 1925 and 1927. Although he sent unearthed artifacts back to his home country for study and exhibition, Obermeier left the enormous stones in place, preserving as much of the monument's original structure as possible. Cool, Hugo. Probably because he couldn't pick them up. Uh, Based on the discovery of a Roman coin at the site, the scholar posited that it had been previously sacked by invading imperial forces. Obermeier's research remained unpublished until 1960. Three years later, a civil engineering project ordered by Francisco Franco's regime brought a dam and reservoir to the region, offering an economic boon but submerging the dolmen underwater. End quote. Uh, unfortunately for those stones, um, they are porous. The stones of the monument are porous and might degrade faster in the open air than they would have underwater. Um, so there's also currently no oversight of the area. So anyone can just like go and visit the dolmen um, and maybe like damage it. Yeah. Um, 
at the moment, Spain's Ministry of Culture is deliberating whether to leave the monument where it is or move all of the stones <laughs> to a more protected They're area. so heavy. I do feel like there are other options. Perhaps. I get. Well, I mean, I guess there is like you could leave it there or take it somewhere else. But in terms of dealing with it, you could yeah. do more. There, there are some like points along that continuum between mm. the two ends. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could like um, shrink wrap them all so they're less porous. Exactly. Just like inject resin in them. Mm-hmm. Resin is very hot right now. Yep. Everybody's making coasters. So, moving on from dolmens to almonds. 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 (laughs) Woof. So, we covered this maybe a year or so ago in an episode of Old News, but the hunger stones are back, folks. Hunger stones, or hungerstein, are hydrological landmarks. Something you might not think about very often, but maybe now you will. These are inscriptions carved into rocks in Czech and German rivers. Maybe other places as well, but the known ones are Czech and German. The inscribed stones were embedded into rivers during historic droughts when water levels were low enough for the inscriptions to be read. Now, as Europe enters another record-setting period of drought, many of the stones are visible again. This includes one in the River Elbe in the Czech Republic. So this is from an article in Ars Technica by Jennifer Willette. Quote, The earliest readable inscribed date on that stone is 1616, but older carvings marking the droughts of 1417 and 1473 were wiped out by anchoring ships over the centuries. Other drought years carved in the stone include 1707, 1746, 1790, 1800, 1811, 1830, 1842, 1868, 1892, and 1893. It's actually possible to see this particular stone around 126 days out of the year, thanks to the construction of a dam that was built on a tributary of the Elba in 1926. The stone also features an inscription likely added in 1938. It is in Czech. I'm not going to read it in Czech. It translates as, Girl, don't weep and moan. If it's dry, water the field. That's the latest book from Rachel Hollis. Girl, don't weep and moan. Girl, wash your face. Yeah. Girl, if it's dry, water the field. I mean, it does sound like a self-help book. Another Elba stone can be found near Blekhede. I'm so sorry. Blekhede? I don't know. Blekhede? Yeah. It's probably black it is. Right. With the inscription, when this stone goes under, life will become more colorful again. End quote. And a bonus I heart context moment for us all. You may have become aware of the Hunger Stones if you hang out on Twitter, because on August 11th of this year, someone posted a photo of the Elba River Stone. The tweet reads... BS, archaeology, history, facts... So I, like one of those Twitter feeds that's like crap. No, well, it was it was there was it was there was one, one of those. those. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, this particular one I think was just like a person. 
The tweet reads, quote, Don't the recent him. drought in Europe once again made visible the hunger stones in some Czech and German rivers. These stones were used to mark desperately low river levels that would forecast famines. This one in the Elbe River is from 1616 and says, if you see me, cry. Um, so that is what the stone says. But the picture itself was taken in 2018 during a different drought. Whether that stone was actually visible in August of this year, 2022, is uncertain. That said, I went and checked on Snoops, and here's a quote from Snoops.com. Andrea Toretti, a senior researcher for the European Commission Joint Research Centre, said during an August 6th... said during an August 6, 2022 news conference that the year's drought could be worse than 2018, which had previously been considered the worst in five centuries. Um, and so Toretti says, quote, just to give you an idea, the 2018 drought was so extreme that looking back at least the last 500 years, there were no other events similar to the drought of 2018. But this year, I think it is really worse than 2018, end quote. So if you were looking for a fun, hopeful end to this one, I got nothing. So let's take one more quick ad break and wrap up with a final example of drought archaeology and wild press takes. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. We are back, and the wild take that Anna mentioned a moment ago may in fact be explained by translation. But we report, you decide, listeners. You can reach your own conclusions. So this story was reported in Deutsche Welle, uh, Germany's international news media outlet, like the English one. Um, Mm -hmm. The title reads, The Bronze Age City in Iraq Gifted to Archaeology by Drought. Thank you, Drought. Um, And so the subtitle is Extreme Drought in Iraq has given German and Kurdish archaeologists the unique chance to examine an ancient Bronze Age city. Zashiku. Zashiku. What did I say it was? Zashiku. I think think it's Zashiku. It was a race against the clock. Quote, since December... 2021, uh, large amounts of water have been diverted from the Mosul Dam, Iraq's most important water reservoir, to prevent harvests from drying out. Due to the low water level, the remains of a 3,400-year-old city that disappeared decades ago emerged on the edge of the reservoir. German archaeologist Ivana Pouillis, a junior professor at the University of Freiburg, said, quote, I saw on satellite images that the water level was falling, but it wasn't clear when the water would rise again, so we had an unknown window of time, end quote. But archaeologists knew that the site, known as Kimune, was interesting. They had been there before. During a similar dry phase in 2018, oh, oh. Big huh? mm. uh, the researchers had discovered a fortress-like palace located nearby on a small hill. It was bordered by a large terrace wall. 
At the time, Ivana Pugliese's team found the remains of wall paintings, which you don't have in fortresses, uh, in bright red and blue tones, thought to be a typical feature of such palaces. The fact that the pigments were preserved despite the flooding was, in Pugliese's words, an archaeological sensation. The team was not disappointed. During this year's excavation, the archaeologists said they were able to uncover other large buildings, such as a massive fortification with a wall and towers that surrounded the city. The researchers' discovery of a large multi-story warehouse full of supplies was particularly exciting. Uh, Polios is quoted saying, the sheer size of this building alone shows that it had to have housed an enormous amount of goods, and these goods had to be produced and brought there first, um, end quote. So it suggests that the city obtained its supplies from a surrounding area that it controlled. Police said their initial findings suggested the extensive city complex could be ancient Zahiku, an important center in the Mitanni Empire. So the Mitanni Empire, Florit, uh, circa 1550 to 1350 BCE, and Zahiku uh, controlled large parts of northern Mesopotamia and Syria, end quote. Um, so the city is lo- really well preserved, despite the whole like being underwater thing, and or also maybe because kind of, of because, yeah. 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 And it's likely that it was abandoned after an earthquake around 1350 BCE that caused the walls of the buildings to fall inward, which sort of sealed up mm-hmm. in, in like in like a not in like an airtight way, but sort of like no. sealed off all the stuff inside, um, and. It wouldn't be a proper Mesopotamian city if there weren't some cuneiform tucked away somewhere. Do not worry. That is the case. Um, There were five (laughs) ceramic jars found that contained more than 100 cuneiform tablets, um, some in their little envelopes, little clay envelopes. Um, So these tablets are from after the earthquake. So probably the middle Assyrian period when people began rebuilding and occupying a former Mitanni city because the location was still good. Yeah. Um, It just, Just... and and this is also uh, the middle Assyrian period, like things are, popping off expanding. and so they may be back they may be back in this in this place um and so something that i found um very cool about this story and and very interesting is that um when time was up when that ticking when, clock went yeah yeah like when when it was like okay we gotta pack this up um they covered every because once you excavate something it is exposed. Um, and then if you let yep. the water come back in, like not, that's not necessarily what you want to have happen. Things so they had not been with, touching water would then be touching water. Yes. Yeah. And you want to keep your wets and your dries separate. Oh yeah. One hand for um, each. And um, so they covered the site. They covered all the features of the excavation. They covered the site in like a tight fitting plastic film. It's like a bright blue film. Um, and, they put down sandbags and like gravel to kind of hold it in place. So they just sealed it up Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully there's water on it again. Hopefully for everybody else involved there in the catchment of the Mosul Dam. Yeah. Yes. And with that, our episode has dried up, folks. Desiccated. So tired. Yeah. Quick. It's a, a quick... Sad one. Quick try. 
We hope you found these stories interesting. And again, if you're in a thinking mood, maybe take some time to think about archaeology's relationship with climate and the extractive nature of excavation. And if you want even more to think about, possibly including those things, um, subscribe over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and join us for an upcoming episode of deep cuts where we talk about the flip side of that coin um this time the sea levels are rising and all the sites we're going to talk about are too wet too wet and we will be back in your ears next week with more content which you can find on any of your preferred podcasting platforms and until then, if you miss us, you can find all of our archived episodes over at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find our syllabus for intro archaeology and anthropology educators. You can find merch, you can find ways to support the show, and much more. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of those feeds go directly to thedirtpod.com. So head on over there, check it out. It's a nice place to be. And we really... It's a great place. Neither too wet nor too dry over there. No, perfect moisture conditions. You know, it's the internet, so you never know. You never know. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.